Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. This is the Dyson House Podcast, a series that investigates and demystifies real issues in international affairs. In 2017, Russia sent two long-range nuclear-capable bombers to a military base at Biak, just off the coast from Indonesia's Papua province. And just last year, they docked a 7,000-ton ship in Papua New Guinea, as well as attempting to build diplomatic ties with Nauru and Tuvalu. Since the dissolution of the USSR, Russia has rebuilt itself as a regional power. And despite losing its position as one of the great powers in the 20th century politics, we can't discount the fact that Russia is a major player in international affairs once again. Even if we don't realise it, our geographical backyard, the Pacific, is part of their long-term plan. That is, at least, according to Dr. Alexei Moraviev, an associate professor and head of the Department of Social Sciences and Security Studies at Curtin University, Perth. Today we discuss Russia's growing influence in the Pacific. Just before we get into it, a small warning. This interview was conducted over the phone, and so some of the audio may sound a little bit scratchy. But nonetheless, it's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Kern University in Perth. Uh, I'm responsible for establishing international relations undergraduate and postgraduate program at Curtin University in, in Perth and uh, expanding it later into graduate program in international relations and, and national security. Uh, well, I have been working in, in the field for about uh, 20 years and um, my uh, interest has always been on problems of national security, war and peace, uh, strategic affairs, uh, maritime security and Russia's role in place in, um, in, in the system of national relations, its role as a specific power and, um, and uh, certainly um, um, on, on uh, questions concerning Russia as a military power, which always been one of the key um, points that distinct Russia um, in, in the eyes of Western uh, professional community um, and, um, and how it effectively affects Russia's um, uh, status as a, as, a, as a global power and as a regional player. Right. Uh, well, I mean, this sort of ties into this whole concept of Russia in the Pacific. I feel like Russia has not traditionally been thought of as a nation with exceptionally strong ties to the Pacific. In terms of geography, North Asia makes more sense for Russia to focus on. I was wondering if this has anything to do with their relationship with China specifically. Is there a strategic military alliance that exists there? Or is there a shared strategic agenda? Well, I, I think it's important to, to understand. I mean, if we're talking about uh, Russia in, in Northeast Asia, well, Northeast Asia forms part of the Pacific, so it's important to have a correct definition of what we understand by the Pacific. If 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 the if the Pacific is uh, um, uh, is a reference to an area that stretches from uh, the Bering Strait, the the connection point between the Arctic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, 
to the Russian Chukotka and Kamchatka Peninsula coast to uh, to Alaska on on the other end and and California, all down to uh, the Indonesian archipelago, Australia, uh, Polynesia, Micronesia, and also taking it further um, eastwards towards um, South America. Well, Russia is part of the Pacific, geographically speaking, even though its geography is only limited to, to effectively Northeast Asia. But I think a popular perception of Russia not being part of the Pacific is driven by the fact that we intend to ignore the extent of Russia's uh, engagement in the uh, in the region, as well as the uh, the time frame that associates Russia with this part of the world. Russia is not a new player uh, in in the Pacific, and in fact, if you start comparing it to other major powers, it's been long here. Uh, and, and longer, um, say, compared to the presence of the United States in the region. Russia established its presence on the shores of the Pacific um, at around 1731. By 19th century, Russia was the dominant power, regional power, in um, uh, in northwestern Pacific, uh, with with the strongest uh, naval force deployed in the area, uh, the, the strongest naval force at the time. That's very interesting because it's not something you traditionally associate with Russia either. Well, e- e- exactly. Um, um, uh, prior to that, Russia Russia's uh, territorial possessions extended across. The Pacific to uh, to uh, Alaska, to uh, parts of California, a number of islands across across the Pacific. Uh, Russia managed to establish diplomatic relations and and contacts um, uh, with a number of uh, uh, nations, or at that time kingdom kingdoms in in Southeast Asia. In fact, the first contact that uh, Australia had with with Russia goes back to the year 1807, mm. when Russian warships sailed into into Sydney Harbour. So it's it's a bit longer than uh, our our relationship uh, with with the United States. Yeah. Um, uh, and and obviously uh, after the end of the Second World War, when the Soviet Union emerged as a as a as a counterpart. As a, as a global counterpart to the United States, the Soviet Union established itself not just as a as a superpower, uh, as a as a civilizational alternative to to the United States, but also as as the most formidable, uh, besides the United States, player in in the Asia Pacific. Russia, just like many other powers, have suffered. Uh, times of uh, relative decline, and that time was certainly marked by its loss in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. In fact, that uh, that war, in my view, highlighted the rise of Asia. That was the point. Of strategic uh, calculus. I see. So you'd say that as a turning point. Well, it's not it's not a turning point. I think it's the first marker. I mean, if we're talking now from the from the position of the 21st century, we we often refer to 
the 21st century as, as the century of the Indo-Pacific yes. or the Indo-Asia-Pacific. We refer to the final decade of the 20th century as the Asian century. But I think the first indicator that uh, the emphasis uh, of today would be on, uh, on, on, on the Pacific, on this part of the world, um, goes back to 1904, 1905 when an Asian power, Japan, uh, managed to achieve military uh, victory over a major European power, the Russian Empire, something that was considered to be uh, inconceivable uh, prior to that. So in, in this sense, Russia's relative decline um, as a power in, uh, in the Pacific was actually an indicator of the growing need to recognize the, the growing importance of the, of the Pacific at, at that time. Um, but there was also periods of, of Russia's rise to its prominence. I, I mentioned early 19th century. The Cold War brought Russia um, uh, and Russia's status as a major in the Pacific power. Uh, to its height. Then it followed by a period of yet another decline of the 1990s when Russia withdrew itself from uh, regional affairs when it declined economically, it declined militarily, and certainly declined politically. And since then, we stopped considering Russia again of, of being viewed as part of the, of the Asia-Pacific community. It was very evident um, when you simply track Australia's strategic assessments of the area. Up until 1992, the Soviet Union or post-Soviet Russia featured in it, and from about 1993, it just disappeared. So the furthest power that we always looked at would be China. But we have failed to look what I would describe the Great Wall of China. We don't, the, the Great Wall of China blinded us yeah. from what was happening to the north of its wall. Of, of its walls. And suddenly it was uh, significantly justified by the way how Russia behaved um, throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. It was more preoccupied with preserving itself as a sovereign nation. It was suffering from ongoing political crisis, uh, catastrophic economic decline, uh, demographic crisis internal security problems and conflicts uh, ranging from secessionist movements to uh, rise of political extremism and terrorism uh, to, to other methods. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it wasn't until effectively the, the second half of the first decade of the 21st century when Russia has once again again manifesting itself and positioning itself well, as, a, as a Pacific power. This is, this is a point I wanted to lead into uh, because I feel like recently we have seen a marked shift in, uh, well, I guess I wouldn't call it a decline anymore. When we see something like in 2017, Russia sending two long-range nuclear-capable bombers to a military base at Biak, just off the coast from Indonesia's Papua province, or when they docked a military ship in Papua New Guinea last year, I believe, um, as well as building diplomatic ties with Nauru and Tuvalu. How do we interpret this uh, Russian military posturing in the Pacific? Well, I mean, Russia has always been viewed as a significant military power, and uh, 
the Soviet Union was never uh, a massively strong economic power. Its, uh, its capability has always been uh, driven predominantly by its ability to project uh, military force, power projection. There was obviously uh, a, a, a more significant economic factor compared, for example, to Russia right now, but it is always, uh, has never been a decisive uh, factor that would um, measure the strength of, uh, of, of the Soviet Union. Yes. And, and, and same goes for the Russian Empire. The Russian Empire made itself felt through uh, power projection, through the use of, um, of, of its naval might. So when Russia um, began uh, claiming its interest across the Indo-Pacific, apart from uh, engaging in uh, uh, exploring opportunities with regards to economic projects, investment, and so on and so forth, um, uh, they began uh, effectively sending signals by means of, uh, of, of projecting um, its, its, its military power. And, and given the maritime, predominantly maritime nature of the, uh, the Asia-Pacific, there are two ways how you can project your military power, either by sea, uh, or, or by air. So the Russians began using both um, physical spheres mm. to showcase that it has rebuilt its military might on one hand, on the other hand, uh, to show to its um, potential clients, friends, and, uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, friends and partners that Russia began reanimating ties with. Yeah that it can come to its aid, it, it, it is here, uh, it is here as a, as a power, as a power to be reckoned with, and uh, that's... Well, it would be... Uh, and that's be... How it, uh, sorry, and that's how it... Uh, uh, that's, that's how you can interpret why Russia is gaining uh, more and more... Um, uh, more and more uh, attention. Also because, again, we sort of missed the, the point when, uh, when Russia managed to recoup its fallen strength. Yes. We, we, we continue to perceive Russia by, by inertia as, as a country that suffers from massive economic problems, that has lost interest or capacity to, to exercise its power, in, in the Asia-Pacific and, and, and a country that cannot really do anything. And our preoccupation with China, and I'm not saying we should neglect China, but certainly there's been a massive hype in, in our expectation that China is the only power, it's the only nation, it's, it's the only significant military power worth attention, has kind of blinded us about other factors, other players, other powers that continue to feature prominently in, in regional strategic affairs. And that's where, when Russia or Russian ships and Russian aircraft began appearing from time to time closer and closer to Australian coast. I mean, the first signal was sent at the time of the G20 summit in Brisbane when Russian task group uh, sailed to the Coral Sea and triggered a massive media hysteria here in Australia. Uh, it catches us by surprise because, again, by inertia, uh, the established public perception is that Russia cannot do it anymore. Yeah.
it would it would be naive to view this as a purely militaristic display also there must be an economic element to that activity in the pacific uh do you how much do you believe this plays into russia's role as one of the largest military arms suppliers behind the us is this does this play into their economic strategy well uh russia is number 2 military supplier in the world and certainly at least one fifth of its arms exports goes to the asia pacific so using its um, using its military power um, serves a number of purposes. One is a form of deterrence to showcase to the United States and its regional allies like Australia yeah. that Russia is capable of reaching them. Uh, to to demonstrate capability, capacity, and intent to Russia's uh, clients and friends, and and certainly to showcase uh, uh, Russian-made military equipment. Yes, so it does. It does um, form part of this portfolio to promote Russia's, uh, Russia as a, as a country that can, still has uh, one of the world's largest indigenous um, uh, military-industrial base and can still innovate and, 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 and produce capabilities that are either comparable to what Western counterparts are offering or even better in, in terms of quality, in terms of performance. On, on a battlefield, uh, but I would not limit uh, um, Russia's arms experts to, to Russia's economic agenda in the region. It's far more diverse. Uh, arms experts um, are no longer one of the key uh, 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 foreign currency earners for the Russian economy. Yes, it continues to generate significant uh, annual profits um, of about. 15 billion U.S. dollars a year, mm-hmm. um, but um, uh, Russia, particularly Russia under sanctions, has, has initiated the practice of diversifying its export base, so it wouldn't be dependent either on arms sales or sales of, uh, of energy resources. Um, in recent years, uh, agricultural exports, grain, in particular, as well as other agricultural products, have overtaken, in terms of, in terms of value, in terms of uh, income generating uh, commodities, uh, Russia's, um, uh, Russia's arms exports, and and the and the Asia Pacific in this sense has been viewed um, by Russia as a lucrative market for uh, the export of its agricultural produce, including environmentally friendly uh, products that the Russians actively promote, as well as an area where Russia can also sell, uh, sell its energy resources. I see. Um, so it, it's, it's not just about weapons, it's also about oil and gas, including um, LPG gas, which Russia began um, uh, uh, processing independently um, of the past decade. The Soviet Union was unable to do it, um, it didn't have the capacity, and Russia, uh, Russia does. As, as an area where Russia can sell its agricultural produce and also uh, um, um, a market where Russia can, for example, offer its expertise in, um, uh, in nuclear technology uh, designed for generating electricity, uh, space technology, uh, uh, aircraft technology, communications, um, uh, exploration, uh, railway, um, uh, 
methods. So the 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 range of, of what Russia is offering to uh, to uh, to the region, and and then I'm I'm just talking about commodities here. Yeah. The other big thing that Russia is offering is uh, it's offering itself its territory and routes that it's controlled as a, as a transit state. Uh, it offers the northern sea route that Russia effectively controls that goes uh, along its Arctic coast as a shortcut um, uh, to a traditional route that connects uh, Asia with Europe via the Pacific and the Indian Ocean and then via the Red Sea and the Mediterranean and a safer route given the turbulence and, and the geopolitical fragility of that um, overshadows the Middle East. Russia is offering itself as a uh, land transit route by means of railway connections. Uh, the, the famous Trans-Siberian Railway that's supposed to connect uh, Western Europe with uh, warm ports in, um, in, in South Korea, uh, Russian Pacific Coast, and potentially uh, Japan. So Russia has a fairly diverse portfolio, economic portfolio that it brings uh, to, the, to the region. So we should not just be thinking of, of Russian weapons. And again, this is what Russia was, was known to do back in the 1990s, but Russia of the 1990s and Russia of 2019 are two completely different um, beasts. Yes, it was a very, very easy mistake to make to construe contemporary Russia with the idea of what the USSR was. I find it interesting that their expanding portfolio within the Pacific region is coinciding with China's growing influence. Uh, has China's growing influence in the same region prompted a shift in focus for Russia? Well, it certainly has. I mean, uh, one... Uh, uh one of the uh, common questions that I get asked is what Russia's uh, Asia strategy, and I would say that Russia doesn't have a, a clearly articulated Asian strategy that is available in the public domain. Mm -hmm. But whenever you study and analyze Russia's principal doctrinal documents, it, it becomes quite clear that Russia's Asia's approach, I wouldn't call it Asia strategy, but what Russia Asia, so Asia Pacific approach, is China centric. So China is paramount to Russia's engagement in the in the region for a number of obvious reasons. One is it shares one of the longest uh, borders with China. Uh, China is a nuclear uh, is a nuclear neighbor. China is a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. Russia and China share a long and and fairly complex history that also had moments of um, acting as true allies and brotherly states and, and also moments where both Russia and, and, and China, or the Soviet Union and China, were at the brink of war. In fact, they fought a number of, of um, uh, minor conflicts with, with each other over, over the period of 19th and 20th centuries. So there is a degree of uh, uh, mutual recognition, and I emphasize that it's a mutual recognition. China needs Russia as much as Russia needs China. Yes. Um, uh, there is a degree of mutual dependence 
Russia is interested in China's investments. Russia is interested in in uh, China's products, uh, some Chinese technologies. Uh, but so is China. China is really interested in Russia's market. Uh, China is interested in Russia's key military technologies. China is interested in Russian military power, as as paradoxic as it may sound, because the Chinese recognize that whilst they are by far superior to Russia economically, they are significantly inferior to Russia militarily as well as politically. China continues to be an inexperienced member of the international community. If you look at the way how China acts as a as a, as a great power, it's very modest. It doesn't get involved in uh, any significant problems. It tends to abstain, you know, China's peaceful way of uh, not antagonizing anyone unless it really it, it really has no choice. And and that partially is driven, and that's my personal view, by China's political immaturity. They're still learning how to be a global player. And they're learning it from the Russians. So quite often you would see the Russians taking on the front role of being the bad boy and, and you know, standing up to the United States, while China acting as a background, uh, not necessarily sidelining adversely with Russia, but uh, certainly supporting Russia indirectly uh, in, in a number of ways. Um, and, and both countries understand that uh, as long as they have uh, not necessarily very close, but friendly enough relations, and more importantly, um, uh, mutually respectful, respectful relations based on understanding of non-aggression, they can manage other challenges that they face without uh, fearing each other, without overlooking each other's shoulder. So for China to achieve strategic push down south, for China to manage successfully its territorial disputes in South China Sea, resolve Taiwan dilemma successfully, rebuff in any, any problems with Japan, uh, requires Russia's support, or at least Russia's neutrality, non-intervention. Similarly, for Russia to manage uh, its problems with NATO, to manage its problems with the United States, to manage its problems uh, along the uh, south, um, uh, southwestern, western, uh, and southern periphery of the former Soviet Union. I'm talking about potential and existing conflicts ranging from threats coming from Afghanistan to Transcaucasus to Ukraine. Right now, it needs friendly or at least uh, neutral China. Confronting threats for both countries on two fronts when they have to. Um, confront the immediate set of strategic challenges plus each other, as it happened in the past, is something that both countries are desperate to, to avoid. So there is, there is um, a, a, a situation when both countries are drawn towards one another, driven by a combination of pro probably a lot of pragmatism and recognition of the need for mutual interdependence. And, 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 and certainly with the continuous, um, with the continuous problems that they have in their relations with the United States, and uh, an inability of Western powers to find some sort of a compromise, the prospect of Russia and China 
uh, embracing each other pragmatically, not because of uh, of um, uh, mutually found love or affection, but simply because of mutual need for one another, is growing quite stronger. I think we also caught in yet another set of perceptions that we just assume and we convince ourselves that Russia and China will never be friends, that Russia and China will always be suspicious of one another, particularly Russia, um, and that would uh, create or recreate the situation of the 1970s when China was used against the Soviet Union by the United States during the Cold War. But China is no longer China of the 1970s for starters. <laughs> And, and, and secondly, uh, it's not going to be played by any power. And, 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 and secondly, both countries understand what the West is trying to do, divide and conquer. And, and they're resisting it. So, um, and, and, and I think we still uh, struggle to come to terms that this is a mutually dependent relationship, not, not an inadequate relationship when we often tend to, to look at it. And, and that what really uh, makes, um, uh, makes the prospect of Moscow and Beijing forming some sort of a defective alliance hmm. more stronger, even though it may be short-lived, even though it may not have the same uh, uh, lifespan as, say, Enzo's. Yeah. But even having Russia and China as brothers and arms for the period of, say, 10, 15 or 20 years, would be significant enough for both countries to achieve strides and to weaken the, the dominance of the West. This actually leads me to my final question, which is, if we look towards the future, do we see Russia continuing to further establish itself in the Pacific, along with China, as a means of becoming a global power once again? Is this something it has to do? Well, Russia is a global power. It may not become uh, a global power forever, but Russia needs to be recognized as a global power now, and it will remain so in the foreseeable future. Being a global power means you have to have vested interests and presence in, in major geopolitical parts of the world, and in the Pacific, or in the Asia-Pacific, or the Asia-Pacific would certainly be one of them. And it's not just because of Russia's geographical connection to, to, the, to the region, but because of so many uh, interests that the Russians have in this part of the world, historical interests, uh, but also pragmatic interests in terms of uh, connecting themselves with old Soviet allies and, and, and friends, uh, establishing relationships uh, with countries with which the Soviet Union couldn't have a relationship because of theological constraints. Uh, take for example ASEAN. You, you, if you, if you look at the relationship between Russia and and members of uh, Southeast Asian community, you would say that it now has really good relations and sometimes very close relations with almost all members of ASEAN, plus the whole organization, um, uh, uh, plus the, the whole organization all, all together. Um, Russia has fairly good relations with, uh, with countries uh, which it may consider to be its geopolitical rival, for example, Japan. It still has ongoing territorial disputes with, with Japan. Um, uh, Japan imposed sanctions on Russia following Crimea um, and crisis in Ukraine, yet the two countries uh, share very robust 
uh, relationship, maintain very active dialogue, and, 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 and so on and so forth. Uh, India continues to be Russia's key partner in the Indian Ocean, and that needs to be recognized and understood in the context of our excitement about the Quad. Yeah. India will never compromise, at least for the time being, its special relationship with Russia, um, even though it, 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 it continues to intensify strategic dialogue with the United States, with Australia, and, and with Japan. Russia managed to achieve some significant geopolitical and strategic successes by building up relationship with countries which it considered prior uh, to be its regional force. Examples would, would include Pakistan, with which Russia managed to achieve a major breakthrough um, um, from about 2012-2014. Mm -hmm. The Philippines would be another example. The, the Philippines? Wow. Yes. Under, under Duarte, yeah. uh, Thailand, I mean, these, these two countries uh, plus Pakistan has always been viewed as, as regional loyal alliance, uh, allies of the United States. Now both of them are developing fairly close and robust relationship with, with Russia. In case of Thailand, uh, another factor that brings the country closer to Russia is tourism. The volume of Russian tourists coming and visiting Thailand is so significant that Thai authorities now really value uh, Russia and, and, and Russian money that are, uh, that are supporting local tourism, that they have to basically uh, rethink and, and, and recalibrate its, uh, its policy towards, uh, towards Russia. Uh, Russia is instrumental. Um, in, um, in with respect to Korean crisis, it has good relationship with South Korea and it maintains special relationship with North Korea, which will be highlighted by the upcoming Kim Putin summit in Vladivostok on the 25th of um, of April. So uh, Russia will continue to be visible and and significant. Uh, across the, the in the Pacific, it's not going to take the same role or take the same role that the Soviet Union used to play during the Cold War. It's not going to overtake China. Uh, there is no doubt about that. But it's finding its niche in regional affairs, and that niche cannot be ignored. And and I don't think we would have the luxury. Of, of, of ignoring it. So Russia is a factor in, um, uh, in, in regional affairs. It's not the factor, as we would refer to say China or the United States, but it's certainly not, not a player that uh, has only presence in, in Northeast Asia because of its geography. Russia managed to get its fingers in so many regional pies and uh, the level of its dialogue with regional members, uh, with regional partners, is far more significant to what we tend to think and assume, particularly here in Australia. You've been listening to the Dyson House podcast, a production of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria.